shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the third and final installment of the Hangover series. Right. This time around, we are looking at the Hangover Part 3, released in 2013, directed once again by Todd Phillips, produced by Daniel Goldberg and Todd Phillips, written by Craig Mazin and Todd Phillips. Starring Bradley Cooper, Ed Helm, Zach Galifianakis, Ken John, Melissa McCarthy, Jeffrey Tambor, Heather Graham, Mike Epps, Justin Bartha, and John Goodman. Music by Christoph Beck. Cinematography, Lawrence Scher. Edited by Deborah Neal Fisher and Jeff Groth. And um, off a, uh, according to Box Office Mojo, off a budget of $103 million, quite high for a comedy, it made $362 million. Of course, that budget does not consider marketing cost and so forth. By this point, the three leads had become super famous actor stars, even more so than in the second one. So it was. Uh, I was a bit surprised they actually were going to do a did a third Hanover. Yeah, there. There. Can you think of another comedy trilogy where they only do three? You mean, or that? They yeah. Get the, well, okay. I, it's, it's not like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where it's a trilogy in five parts. Hmm. Um, Beverly Hills Cop. Yep, there you go. Um, I was going to say American Pie, but that's not... They did four of those. And I guess Rush Hour, videos. but those are more action comedies. Yeah, and as it turns out, Hanover 3 is sort of an action comedy. Um, <laughs> True. But I, I will say with Hanover Part 3 that um, on the posters, it all said, like, the end and, like, we're going to die and all these sort of things. Yeah, this to, whole to movie... make it perfectly clear, this was the last one. But that being said, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years they do Hanover 4. With with characters that are supposed to be the children of these characters. Oh, I hope not. Yeah, I mean, you're right. That's probably what they'll do. Or a spinoff series about the monkey. Or about the the baby and the monkey going adventures. (laughs) Actually, that could be be the secret of of Russell Madness. Russell Madness might be a secret Hangover spinoff. I don't know what that is. It's it's a comedy starring Crystal the monkey, who can talk now, and who becomes a re- a professional wrestling coach with a kid. Oh boy, um, yeah. So let's see here. So I gotta I, say, yeah. when when the when the opening credits started, and I saw that John Goodman was in this movie, I got a cinema boner. Uh, I mm. love John Goodman. John Goodman is so often the best thing in a film, but this is the sequel to Hangover that I wanted. This this is so much what I wish the second Hangover was, but the fact that it has John Goodman in it is just both icing and treasures on this cake. Yeah, I agree this is better. This one um, almost pretends like the second one never happened. You get a few references here and there, but it it's really, it kind of has this conspiracy theory moment where it sort of, you know, uh, the events that happened in the first caused a chain reaction of events that pay off in the Hanover Part 3. Yeah, um, I, do, I, I do like that. I do like that this mm-hmm. is so tied to the first film. 
I first saw this um, on video and then recently for the show, and it um, I remember it being pretty funny, but the reason why I didn't catch this in the theater is I rented Hanover 2, and that disappointed me so much I wasn't going to go to the theater to see the third one. Understandable reaction. And um, so what about you? The first time you watched it was for the show, is that right? Yes, first time I watched this was last night. Um, did you feel a bit of fatigue watching it so soon after watching the second one? No, not really. This, this film hmm. completely re-energized me for the franchise. Oh, great. Um, yeah, let me talk about the, uh, the plot very briefly. So, um, Leslie Chow, the gangster played by Ken John, escapes from the prison he got put in at the end of Hanover 2 and returns to, um... To Vegas. The United, well, eventually to Vegas, but he yeah. returns to um, the United States to get the Wolf Pack involved in well, no, no, his he shenanigans. Doesn't, he doesn't get the Wolf Pack involved in shenanigans. He uh, just wants Alan. Yeah, because Alan, so Alan k- kills a giraffe that he bought and causes a massive pileup on the freeway. Uh, and the, sh- the short version is Alan has hit rock bottom. And so his family and the wolf pack stage an intervention to put him in like a rehab facility where he can get like real therapy and improve himself. And on the way to that facility, they get kidnapped by mobsters that have a grudge against Leslie Chow. And as he is, Les- as they are Leslie Chow's closest associates, they get roped into this gang conflict involving, involving a heist. Right. And so we, uh, I can see you're bubbling with excitement on this one. Yeah. It's so th- this movie does a lot of things different it shakes up the formula while at the same time returning to las vegas for a big part of the movie which was you know the iconic um location of the original it feels like in some ways they're making up for the hanover part two and i like that it's not just the, the game is hunover has to wake up and do something again i mean we do get a more typical hanover scenario in the end credits but we'll we'll get to that when we get there um looking over the cast i just want to talk about new members for the cast what do you think about john goodman he is great. I love I love it when John Goodman gets to play a villain. Uh, and yeah, he's a and real the, uh, big presence. Yeah, and the, and the other thing I like about this is that he's playing a villain in a comedy, but there's really nothing comedic about his role. Mm-hmm. Like the only real funny, like every joke he makes is a, is a threat. And that, that wouldn't be out of place if this were a serious heist film or, or gangland film. The the only thing he said that really is kind of almost pure comedy is when Alan wets his pants. He goes, "Oh, geez, you ruined those pants." Hey, Jeff, can you go inside get my get get my friend Alan here uh, some sweatpants? Hmm. <laughs> like that he suddenly so shows concern for Alan is just so funny. Melissa McCarthy is. Um has a brief role in this. I'd say it's a little more than a cameo, but not much more. And she yeah, is yeah, she... actually quite good. I kind of wish she was in this a bit more. Yeah. Like she, she is also great in this. I could, I could have used a, a bit more of her if they could have gotten her involved in the film climax, but I love that Alan gets a real arc in this movie. And I love that she's Alan's love interest. And I love that she is every bit as terrible as he is. They have the most disturbing lollipop seduction scene. That, oh, that's great. That, that's a good bit of uh, physical comedy. Um, one thing worth noting, uh, Mike Tyson originally was supposed to be in this film, but then they ended up not using him. So mm. 
which I think is for the best. It, it he felt forced at the end of the second one. So I mean, it, I don't know. This movie has a lot going on. I don't know if you need Mike Tyson jammed into it. Yeah, I can't think of where you'd work, fit him in, really. Mm-hmm. So let's start from the top, which, as you mentioned, involves the death of a giraffe. Uh, this was heavily featured in the trailer for the film. Yeah, we get we get Alan in his in, in like a convertible driving down the road with a giraffe in this trailer. Uh, and and the moment I saw the giraffe and saw that he was driving, like, oh gosh, this giraffe is going to die. And it does not disappoint. He drives uh, after talking about how his life is great and how awesome it is that he has a giraffe. He drives under an overpass with a low clearance, which snaps the giraffe's head off, which crashes through the window of a family's van, which leads to a crazy uh, amount of highway chaos, which which got so elaborate, especially with like the, the jackknife truck with all the pipes. It felt like something at a final destination. It reminded me almost of something in the original Blues Brothers film where they have those crazy car crashes for no oh, good reason. Oh, There's yeah. Smokey and the Bandit. It's um, because it's Hal he doesn't, Needham-esque. It really is a, a, a tip of the hat to the good old Hal Needham, director of Smokey and the Bandit. I think he also did the second one, perhaps. Um, I could be mistaken on that. I don't really care to check for that detail. No, I believe Hal um, Needham did all three. Yeah, yeah you could be right. Um, but with... The what am I call it? Yeah, in the in the trailer, I think it's funnier the way they cut the same scene, because they cut away from the impact of the draft. You don't see it, and the people's reactions when you don't see it, I think, are a little funnier. Well, you don't see that. You don't see the impact in the film either. You see the head fly well, you, off. Oh, you see the head, yeah, but you don't see it yeah. come flying off. You just you mm-hmm. see Alan, and you hear this wet thunk, and then we cut to the head flying through the air and crashing through the window. Yep. Um, the the idea of his friends and family wanting to do an intervention for Alan because he's been off his meds for six months is a smart way to get the characters together. It doesn't feel extremely forced. Um, I believe you have even the, the actress that played the wife in the second film is back in this one, right? Yes. And his wife, briefly. But- but even before then, we talked about how Jeffrey Tambor is used less and less in each mm-hmm. film. He's used even less in this film, but he's used so well because he he chews out Alan. He talks about all the checks he had to write to kind of make this problem go away uh, and talks about how Alan needs to be on his medication. And Alan just, he, Alan just puts on a pair of headphones playing Billy Joel's My Life, completely <laughs> missing the point of that song. While As you see back- in the background. Yeah, yeah in oh, the background, God. Jeffrey Tambor has a heart attack. And dies, and they're at, and, and his mother is is yelling at Alan to call nine one one, and Alan can't even hear it. So the fact that his irresponsibility kills a giraffe, and his irresponsibility kills per- his father, potentially prevents Jeffrey Tambor's life from being saved, is so wonderfully dark and horrific. And that they they hang on his face in the foreground. The background is a bit out of focus, and you get my life. I mean, they play a whole like minute and a half of the song, like they. Yeah. They really commit to the gag. It's a, a, a smartly done bit of business. Then and um, smash cut to the funeral. Smash cut to the funeral at which, uh, thank you, Spock the Corgi. That's one of my dogs barking for some reason. Um, so we have a, a gag of Alan singing Ave Maria where it's dubbed over by another voice. I could live without that. He has the that. voice of an angel, which right. 
I like. I, I think that's a, that's another thing that like that I find delightful and frustrating about Alan is he turns out to have this great talent which he never he uses. does nothing with. Yeah, I you know I almost would have rather that had been Zach Galifianakis's real voice because I think he can sing or if not that he can play the piano certainly. Um, you know that's ironic that Zach Galifianakis, who's known for playing the piano, never once touches one in these films. Isn't it? But Stu does in the first one, and he plays guitar in the second one. Um, I don't believe he has a musical number in this one, although he could be misremembered. No, no, they, they give Leslie Chow a musical number. Uh, a few of them, actually. That's right, yeah. He sings I Believe I Can Fly, and we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so, as you mentioned, the group, as they're driving with Alan, uh, they're, they're being chased by this truck on the highway that it, it's sort of a Ben-Hur sort of thing. They don't know what's happening. The car keeps on being smashed into them. And it's really sort of intense. They're in the desert uh, headed towards the rehab facility. And uh, as they get knocked over, you get this horrific image of people with the pig mask on. Yeah, a bunch of gangsters in pig masks uh, uh, abduct them. And then John Goodman comes out right off the bat. And it turns out that uh, it turns out that uh, John Goodman was involved in a plot to steal a bunch of gold, uh, steal a bunch of uh, gold from uh, from an investor from Saudi Arabia. And that the gold was stolen and was put into two different trucks going two different directions to decrease the odds that, that the fortune would be caught. And Leslie Chow, disguised as a disguised as a, a sheriff, pulls over one of the trucks, kills the drivers and steals the gold. And that he vanished and then showed up. They'd escaped from the Taiwanese prison. And as they are his associates, John Goodman kidnaps, uh, John Goodman kidnaps Doug and gives them like 48 hours to, to find Leslie Chow uh, and deliver him or else, uh, or else Alan's or sorry, or else uh, Doug is going to be shot. It's also uh, revealed that Marshall's sort of um, head of security is a black Doug played again by Mike Epps. Yeah, he doesn't which is... get enough to do here, but he's still quite good. I mean, he's and I he's like that, that ties it back into the first film, and mm-hmm. and yet it it changes the context of, of of things because there's a great bit in the first film where where Mike Epps's Black Doug is talking. About, oh man, I gave you the wrong drugs. Oh, I'm sorry, man. Marshall's gonna be pissed at me for this. And I always thought he was saying Marsha, and like the joke was he was talking about his wife or girlfriend or something. Hmm. But no, in fact, and then I think they also have a scene where they, they cut back to Zach Galifianakis buying the drugs off of Black Doug. And I have to think that's something new filmed for this film, right? Oh, I think I think it clearly had to be. But it's made to look like something out of the first film with the, the color scheme and the And he's the wearing t-shirt. the same t-shirt. Yeah, which I think was a nice, we didn't need to see that happen, but it was, I guess, sort of nice to see it. Um I will give, uh, we, we neglected to mention the opening credits is played pretty straight with uh, Leslie Chow doing a breakout during a prison riot with the dramatic music. Oh, yeah. And, and I, love, I uh, love the slow-mo of all the chaos going on in the prison during the riot. Well, and it's a real good shot of, you know, they, they go into Ken John's, um Oh, he has a poster of something, right? He has a, he has, a, he has the hang in there kitten poster on his wall, <laughs> which has a tunnel and, behind it, just like in Shawshank Redemption. Right, and as they lift up the thing, you get a view from the opposite end, as, and they pull back, and he screams like "Chow!" And meanwhile, Leslie Chow's escaping, but Ken John, he um, 
you really see him struggling, making it, trying to escape through the prison. And he, other than a few lines of him cursing, they don't really play the moment for comedies as much. Well, it's so funny because like, he escapes through a sewer system and he's eventually in this long pipe with light at the end. And because they had already done the Shawshank Redemption reference, I was waiting for a fugitive reference. Well, they which sort never... of do, don't they? Because the water flings him out and he has to fall. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, well, uh, there's a the the drainage sluice is open and he gets blasted mm-hmm. out of the pipe. Uh which so apparently that prison is on top of a mountain. Yep. And he survives the impact to the ocean somehow. Well, maybe it's soft water. Yeah, maybe he had um I mean Leslie Chow knows how to do a plan as we see in this picture, so who knows, but it's a it's an interesting way, a different way to open the film and it, it sort of continues, one of the few things that continues in the first film is Leslie Chow says he'll get his revenge. And, I mean, this movie is, is really the uh, the Alan and uh, Mr. Chow show. No, it, it really is, and uh, which, which actually leads to one of the, the, the better bits where... <laughs> where Alan has been getting emails from Leslie for like since the, <laughs> since the last movie and That's never right. mentions the emails until long after they would have helped. And how he even, he even got an email from Leslie explaining that he was going to escape from prison and that they should meet up and have a good time once he gets to the States. Not just that, but, um, you know, this is after smartphone. By the time this came out 2013, you know, more people had iPhones or Android phones, the smartphones, and um, Alan is very attached to his phone and he like is really hesitant to, to give it over to people, even though all the clues they need are on his phone. And he's like, <laughs> why don't you think about me? I love the speech he goes on later in the movie. He's like, why don't you think about me? Can you imagine if, if I gave uh, if you accidentally deleted all my apps and I had to go and download all 65 of my apps? Do you know how long that would take, Stu? Yeah, I, I love I love that speech because like the speech he's giving is the speech that everybody should have been giving to him the entire trilogy. Right. It's just so it's so petty, and it Alan never likes Stu anyway, so it's a nice continuation of that thing. Um, yeah, but but we you they do they do see from uh, from the emails that Leslie wants to meet up with uh, with Alan in in Tijuana, so they drive down to Mexico. They do, and that. They, um, Stu and Phil try to do a stakeout, but Chow catches on real quick, but not before Chow makes Alan give him a kiss, which is a very <laughs> sort of awkward moment, but like well, it's well, Alan. Leslie Chow has some idea of how to maintain his cover and apparently getting kissed by Alan is part of it. Right. Give me a kiss, Alan. Ah, good. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a funny moment that they don't really explain and then is it later in this film where alan mentions like oh well child trying to sleep with you isn't that strange he usually tries that with everybody yeah that that is rich (laughs) so it's like i mean what what's that backstory between alan and child i mean there's more than what's revealed in the movie certainly i almost want to i'd rather see that story but um but yeah, so they, we, they have their plan that they are going to kidnap Chow uh, by they got they got Stu to see, I love when they right. sent Stu in yeah. to use his 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 prescription authority to get some some knockout drugs and he's so bad at getting this prescription done and I like that the I like that the kid that he's talking to at the pharmacy counter really spells out all the ways that the transaction is suspicious and it's nice that we don't it, it's a good um, twist that we don't get to see how that finishes out you just see it cuts to the outside 
He says, well, I almost lost my license, but we got the meds. Yeah, and, and that's so great because it, it frustrates me to no end in movies when a character can just immediately get prescription drugs so super quickly. And even though he's a doctor, he's a dentist, right? And, you know, there's, I mean, and that's a real joke in the, the field that, um, I mean, there's a famous one where it's, you know, dentists or just doctors that couldn't hack it through med school. It, it, it is it is kind of cute the way the movie continues to dump on dentists. Yep. Um, did you know, and I, I worked with a guy that went to, to dental school, and they actually have you practice on dummy heads. That makes sense. Yeah, but it's kind of creepy. He was showing me pictures of it, and it was a bit strange. Like, okay, it's you, you have to, this is this tooth, and you've got to brush it like this. You can't brush it too hard. Oh, you broke the dummy's uh, incisor off. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, here with, um, so now we get a, one of many plot twists in the film where Marshall tells him to get Chow, but then Chow convinces him and says, like, oh, you know, actually, I want to get, um, well, well, I have what it, what it is, is after gold. failing yeah. to drug Chow, who sees through, who sees through the attempt after singing, after singing a karaoke version of the song Hurt. Um, but the karaoke version of the Johnny Cash cover of the Nine Inch Nails original. Yeah, which is a great cover, by the way. Um, Excellent. Yeah. But yes, because because the reason because the whole the whole reason uh, Marshall wants Leslie is to get the gold. And so, so Leslie's like, okay, well, all we have to do is get the gold, and then we give it to him, and I go free, and and Doug goes free, and he explains that the gold he stole he hid in his Mexican villa, you know, behind a wall, but that property was seized after he got arrested, so someone else owns the house, but that person's on vacation, so Leslie's clearly been planning this for a while, so they come up with the plan to break to bypass security, break into that house, and get the gold out of the wall. Right, with the explanation that, you know, once we get my gold, we can give it back to Marshall, and then everything's hunky-dory. And I really, I really like this, because it seems, this seems like a very well-thought-out heist. They use the drugs to drug, uh, to drug the two guard dogs, uh, but then, so they can get in the house without tripping the alarms. This is so clever. The house has an electronic doggy door, so they just put on the dog collars, and the doggy door opens for them. Well, I like when they do the plan that Chow has a model of what the house looks like. Yeah, it's a really nice model, too. That's always a nice... I love when they have those, those planning out scenes. And you're going to yeah, an Alan idiot moment there. With the chicken? Well, no, where Alan's like, okay, so let me get this straight. We're not breaking into this house because this is too small. We are breaking into a full-size house that <laughs> looks just like this. Oh, uh, you get a, you know, you mentioned dark humor in the series. There's a lot in this film in particular, but you, you, there's a moment where a bunch of these chickens that Chow uses for cockfights kind of go loose and start attacking everyone, and they open the window and throw them out, but there's what, one that won't escape, and Chow no, no, he, smothers him. No, he shoots all the chickens, except for the, one. The one chicken that, to isn't kill, that isn't fighting anybody, he smothers with a pillow for no reason. <laughs> And he gives a speech. I mean, it's clearly a um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest reference. Yeah. But it's just so dark, and they hold on that for like a whole, it feels like a whole minute. Like, it feels like enough time to strang- to suffocate a chicken in real time. Uh, it's, it's horrific, uh, but it's still funny. Um, but yeah, now we, now we get the heist part, and Alan can't do it because he's too fat to fit in the doggy door. 
but yeah, they go inside. There's a great, there's a great cut the wires bit where they have to cut the same wire at the same time on these two security consoles to disable the system. And turns out Leslie is colorblind, and he not even he knew that he was colorblind. Right. It's um. Also, I mean, Chow is just really likes to push Stu's buttons, which is pretty easy to do considering how uptight Stu is. But like, as they're on for like a dog, like he sniffs his ass. He's like, haha, like dogs say hello. And eats dog food and goes, mmm, so yummy. Yeah, like for some for some reason, <laughs> he's super invested in like acting like a dog for this. Even though they don't need to, they just need to stay close to the ground <laughs> until they get the motion sensors disabled. Yeah, it's but yeah, ridiculous. it's and it's great. And I do love that once they get the security system disabled and let everyone in the house, I love all the casual destruction he engages in. Right, he knocks over the. Uh... Knocks over but the he, suit he goes, of armor. He slashes knocks, a painting. Slashes points. a painting. Goes like ruined. He he's drinking a beer, which I think is probably some sort of product placement. Yeah, but yeah, they get into the they get into the basement, and this is the other thing I love. So the the gold's supposed to be behind this brick wall in the wine cellar, and I love that they acknowledge that using a sledgehammer to knock down a wall is difficult. Uh, I, I I've had to do that. Uh, it is it is exactly as hard as this movie makes it look. It reminds me of the, there's a joke in Batman Forever where the Riddler, as played by Jim Carrey, punches a guy and then says, ouch. Because punching a person really hurts, especially if you're not doing it correctly. Oh, yeah. But, you know, so so, uh, inevitably, uh, inevitably, uh, Phil is the one who has to take the sledgehammer and knock down the wall. They find the gold, they get all the gold upstairs, and then we get another, we get the double cross, where he's like, is that all the gold? Yep. Okay, bye, suckers. And he locks them in the basement. And tur- activates the alarm and drives out. <clears throat> and then turns out that this wasn't uh, Leslie's half of the gold and it wasn't in Leslie's house. This was Marshall's house and Leslie just tricked them into stealing Marshall's half of the gold. <laughs> so now he has all the gold. Yeah, it's... it's and it was, and it's he snapped smart... the necks of the guard dogs on the way out. <laughs> right. Oh, it's just such a smart plot twist and then that marshall kills black doug i found surprising who's now his head of security right and he um meanwhile did we mention that um oh that that doug got captured oh yeah we mentioned that doug was was kidnapped and being held by marshall but he's there during all this and i love that bit. you know your boys better hurry and get me chow i'm killing doug's today yeah that's a good line that is such uh, a great threat and I like that uh, Goodman underplays his part. I mean, he comes across as threatening as a real heavy, and it's not a lot of wink, wink, nod, nod to the camera. He's just this intimidating presence that means business, much like Chow means business, but sort of a is an opposite in a way. It's so good. It is so good. Mm. Yeah. So then, then we get on another uh, another uh, Mary Chase to track down uh, track down Leslie Chow, which then which brings them back to Vegas. Right, and we see the the classic I, look of Vegas as you drive on in. It's oh, a but nice I, lo- I love the way they find. I love the way they find them though, because Leslie stole their vehicle uh, to get to to get uh, uh, to to escape. And this is when we get that great app speech because yes. uh, turns out uh, I think it was at Phil left his phone in the in the. Uh, in the van that was stolen. And so Zach Alphanakis uses the find, find your phone app on his phone 
to track uh, to track Phil's phone. And I love it when a movie takes advantage of technology that is already established. Like, yeah, that it is makes smart. it it's real glad, plausible. That's a thing that exists, and I'm glad mm-hmm. this movie acknowledges it. Right, as opposed to them, you know, going to the police and having it be a, a cameo of people from the first film. Although, speaking of cameos, we we do get to see uh, Heather Graham as Jade briefly, and I think she's wasted a bit here. Yeah, well, I like I like that she's had her own full life after after the accidental marriage uh, to Stu, and how she's ma- she's married a guy. She loves she loves the baby from the first movie. She's pregnant with another kid. The other thing that I love is that her husband. We never meet her husband, but that her husband mm. knows about her past uh, as an escort and is totally fine with it. Yeah, but no, yeah, that's they, a great they, moment. It's uh, also that. I mean, it's mainly an excuse for Alan to talk to the kid and says, you know, your name, real name is Carlos. Uh, oh, yeah. And then, then the sunglasses. kid asks, are you my real father? And Alan says, yes. Yeah, it's, it's just so <laughs> inappropriate. It just made me think where the two of them are in the tent inside the, the kid's playroom. It made me think of the the quotes from the original film where he says, like, he's not allowed in your playgrounds. Like, he's not, yeah, not allowed in your playgrounds and schools. And I believe there's even a comment that some agency has his prints on file. Well, and we even get a scene sort of earlier, I'm sort of jumping back and forth here, but when they get arrested uh, for being, when they're locked up in the uh, the basement of Marshall's house, they look at their police file, and for Stu and uh, Phil, it's just one charge of vandalism from Las Vegas, and then Allen's is like a two-inch thick big file. Oh yeah, and he's going through it going, yep, I did that. I did that. I did so, that. Oh, I remember that. Again, the, those hints at his um, character's dark past that they don't, they tell you just enough to know that this guy is is dangerous in his own way. Uh, not to mention in each of the films, he drugs his own friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is the movie where we find out about the marshmallows from the second film and how he measured it so you'd have to eat four to have a lethal dose. Yeah, it's a it's a good callback, and and yet it's, it's still a funny joke, even if you haven't seen the second film, because you could frankly skip to this one without watching the second one and fill in the blanks. I can agree with that. Don't you think? Um, yeah, but fact, Jane, Jane uses her contacts in it because she's no longer an escort, but she uses her contacts from that inju- industry to track mm. down to track down Leslie to a penthouse in uh, Caesar's Palace. And of course, Caesar's Palace is where they stayed at in the original picture. Yeah, and I do like that. You know, they talk about how like the security is so tight. You need a special key card just to get to that floor, and then you need to get past hired security to get into any individual room. And I like that they take advantage of their knowledge from the first film. They know how to get roof access, so they get mm-hmm. up to the roof with a bunch of stolen bed sheets from a staff from a uh, from the la- the staff laundry area, and they're just going to climb down onto the balcony of Leslie's room. No, I'll give Todd Phillips credit for that uh, sequence when they, they use the, the improvised rope and go down, because it's real tense. Um, I mean, I'm someone that I don't really like heights. I don't mind, you know, I don't mind going up elevators or getting in airplanes, but I just don't like looking off the edge of cliffs and things. And uh, I was really breaking into a cold sweat, even though I'd seen this movie before, watching, you see... Um, that Phil struggles to get down there, but he does okay. And then Alan, you know, he's going to mess it up. And of course he does. And at one point he's like wedged in the, uh, in the nook and cranny. I think of the, uh, Oh, what letter is it? Maybe like the, the e one letter the R or the E and the C or something like that. Right. It, he, it's sort of a perfect wedge shape for him to fall into in Caesar's yeah. palace. 
in the lettering. And, and I love that, you know, all he has to do is drop straight down into Phil's arms. And even Phil says, don't push out, just drop straight down. And yeah. he can't even do that right. He jumps no. out and almost falls off the back. He almost falls. And luckily, you know, Phil can pull him back. But, like, uh, part of me thought, like, wow, if they killed Alan off that way, that'd be... And they wouldn't do that because Alan is the real... Zach Galifianakis is the real star of, this, of these pictures. But <laughs> it, it was just a, a neat moment. But not to mention that when they get to Chow, I mean, there's also a big, weird kind of... You have really loud club music going on. You have the, the strobe uh, lights. The strobe lights. It almost feels a bit surreal, like something out of Manhunter. There's drug paraphernalia everywhere. You can't hear You can't hear what anyone's saying, but it's full of terrified hookers who are trying to tell them something. But you mm-hmm. never figure out what that is. But then, of course, Chow gets the drop on them. There's a brief gunfight. And then Chow jumps off the balcony... And he escapes because he's wearing a parachute, and he paraglides yeah, <laughs> away from Caesar's some... Palace the whole time singing I Believe I Can Fly from Space Jam. I would have liked them to have him sing the song more, I think. You get some really nice cinematography of, I mean, if you've ever been to um, to Las Vegas, the strip really isn't that big, the main strip where they are. And so that you see him fly over and you see... Uh, you no, know, he goes towards the Paris, kind of goes over the Planet Hollywood section. Like, there's just so many uh, fun, recognizable things that he gets to see from that unique angle. And it's all green and screen, but it's very good green screen. Much better oh, than is, CGI yeah. smoke from the second film. Uh-huh. And uh, Stu is in the car and is driving to try and follow him as he's... I mean, you talk... I mean, that's an impressive bit of sort of car stunts right there of trying to drive through crazy Las Vegas traffic and there's pedestrians... Yeah, and he's on the phone, and then at one point the phone gets wedged under the brake so he can't stop the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a good bit of business there. But I mean, they do eventually they do eventually capture uh, Leslie Chow and throw him in the trunk of the limo and take him uh, to meet Marshall up on this hilltop. Right. It's a good sort of um, confrontation there. Well, it's a real tense of... ending, and, and, and you know, like, even then you hear, like, you hear Chow in the trunk bargaining. You want a girl? I'll get you a girl. You want a boy? I'll, I'll get you a boy. You want me? You can have me. Just let me go. Uh, but, you know, they, they, they get there, and, you know, and... Well, and this just struck me, too. How did we see Chow to begin with in the first film? In a car trunk. In a trunk. Right. And they put him in a trunk. I mean, there's a nice uh, securitous nature to that. Nice callback to the original... And yeah, and like the, you know, the deadline's at like five in the morning or something. And so they're driving there. They look like the shit is beat out of them. And and it's a really nice tense scene because, you know, uh, Marshall shows up with his people and he hands he hands them Doug and he gives his little speech. And then he just opens fire on the trunk of the limo. But then, you know, like, oh, well, he he wouldn't be – I was so just excited that he wasn't so incompetent as to assume that Chow was dead. So he opens the trunk, and the trunk's empty, and then mm-hmm. Chow jumps out of the sunroof of the limo and shoots all the gangsters. <laughs> and it turns out that Zach Galifianakis, on the way out of the vehicle, uh, hit the latch that opens the back seat, granting access to the trunk. He gives Chow a fighting chance, which Chow is like, is all Chow ever needs. And it's a good character moment, because Alan is friends with Chow. As weird as that friendship might be, and as strange as whatever that might entail. But then it, then it comes full circle, because, you know, Chow is so, is so excited, and, you know, uh, Chow gives, Chow gives, uh, gives a Alan brick. A, a brick of gold, and Alan refuses the brick, and then explains, oh. you know, we're friends, 
but your friendship isn't good for me. You're like a disease. You destroy everything. So I'm going to have to say goodbye. We can't be friends anymore. And like, it's, it's a shocking amount of character growth, uh, for, uh, for Alan. But, but strangely enough, Leslie Chow takes it with gentle good humor. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's a good final character moment. It shows that even though, yes, Alan is crazy and off his meds and he realizes the, um, what what literal and mental havoc that Chow has brought to their relationship, to his life. Yeah, so instead he goes back to Melissa McCarthy's pawn shop where they have this really wonderfully awkward kiss. He invites her on a date to, to one of the casinos, but it turns out she's banned from there because she was charged with abuse of the elderly when she took her mom <laughs> there for her birthday. And uh, I'm banned there for life plus 10 years. Uh, so they go to a different casino. They're going to go to a different casino that has better prime rib. And there's the awkward kiss, and his pants fall down. It's like I saw this in a pornography. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then and then we flash forward to six months later, and now uh, Alan is the groom, and he's going to marry <laughs> Melissa McCarthy, and the Wolf Pack is back together. And th- and what I really love is that you know he talks about how I'm going to have to re- now that I'm getting married, I'm going to have to resign from the Wolf Pack. <laughs> But then after that, he immediately mentions, like, so that means we can only see each other on every Sunday and alternating Tuesdays. Like, it's some incredible for bowling, amount of yeah. commitment. Yeah, for bowling. Um, and, and, it, and it's really kind of sweet. And they do another hero walk down a corridor. They go through the doorway to where the wedding's going to be, and there's all this light. And the credits just start. And I thought, oh, that's a really touching ending. But we do get a stinger. Well, not just that. As they're walking towards the... Uh, the door for the the wedding it cuts back to clips from the previous two films of them doing the hero walk yeah we see all the wolf pack hero walks which is really kind of sweet i like that they're mm-hmm. giving them a, a real send-off it helps with the finality of this this picture it does and as you mentioned it cuts to black and then shortly after the credits we get a scene that it, it looks just like the them waking we, up from a hangover in the we, other film. And, and it's a much better depiction of chaos than in the second movie. There's a motorcycle crash through a bar with the engine still running. There's yep. a there's a tripod-mounted minigun <laughs> that has shot <laughs> up a wall. Uh, and and, and the, all the wolf pack is there, and Melissa McCarthy's there. Yep. And, the, and they all like wake up like, what, what happened? And then Stu's like, oh, the wedding cake. Or no, Alan's like, oh, the wedding cake, that was a gift from Chow, which Mm. I love that he hasn't grown so much that he doesn't make stupid decisions. And then, uh, you know, Stu comes out of the bathroom and his chest is shaved and he has breasts uh, and uh, starts uh, starts freaking out. And then Leslie Chow walks in naked with a katana talking about how they all got so fucked up. And that that's the that and then the monkey drops from the ceiling and starts attacking somebody. And that, that bit of fan service is the final scene in the Hangover trilogy. It's a nice bit of service, and it makes you wonder: Do they were they kind of hedging their bets to say maybe we can get a fourth one? Or I don't do you think, think it's just so. A, it's I a think they were. Tr- I think they were trying to show a post Hangover scene one so that the movie could have a Hangover and two to introduce a cr- circumstance so crazy you couldn't possibly make a movie out of it. Although mm. you can, and that's going to be part of my pitch a sequel later. Right. So um, I would say sequel yes for Hangover Part Three. I think it's a big improvement over the second one. I like that part of it is a heist film. Uh, you get a bit more car chases in there, and there's uh, some some good moments, especially if you like the characters of Mr. Chow or Alan. 
um, you're going to like this movie. Yeah, th- this is this is what the second movie should have been. I think this is a great film. I like that it's less. I like that it's less of a bro comedy and of errors and more of a heist, a, a heist film, gangster film, criminal film, whatever you want to call it. This is getting a sequel. Yes, for me as well. I really, really enjoyed this film so much more so than I thought I was after seeing the second Hangover. And on that note, let's do pitch a sequel. Thrasher, what did you have in mind? So my pitch a sequel is. Uh, it's going to open with the same post-Hangover scene from from uh, Hangover Part Three, and so this one turns out uh, turns out that they are in a hotel in Canada, which is where uh, they were going to do their honeymoon. They were going to do the full Niagara Falls honeymoon, but the wedding cake from Chow. Uh, wasn't a gift. Chow, as always, has an ulterior motive. He wants to get fucked up, have fun, but also get his revenge on all the craziness the Wolfpack uh, put him through uh, in the in the first film. So he's decided that he's the reason he has the katana. He's going to hunt them for sport. So it's a crazy, most dangerous game hangover film uh, in. Uh, in Canada with Leslie Chow trying to kill the wolf pack uh, plus uh, plus Alan's new bride. Uh, but to raise the stakes, uh, Chow has decided that who is the last one alive, he will he will split the gold with because he figures one of them deserves something for helping him get that gold in the first place. So there is kind of a prize at stake and they decide, well, let's beat Chow at his own game. Let's just take the gold for ourselves. So while they're trying to not be killed by Chow, they're also trying to figure out where that idiot has stashed his gold so that they can steal it and then flee the country. Hmm. And what would you call it? Uh, I'd call it, uh, I'd call it the hangover part four. Eh? There you go. Let's see. If I were doing one, I would do um, a, a spinoff, and it would be about the uh, the monkey. Really? Mm-hmm. It would be, you know, the monkey was such a hit, you could do a whole movie about the, the monkey, and it would be a spinoff with Mr. Chow and the monkey. <laughs> and it would be called... Um, it would just be called like Mr. Chow and Monkey meets Monkey, and it would take place in. Uh... Hmm, I would say not in Thailand because I think that's they already did that for the second movie. But you would have it. Maybe the monkey starts as being for sale in a in a veterinary uh, in a illegal animal trade conference in Vegas. And that's how Mr. Chow gets the monkey, and he teaches the monkey to steal drugs, and they sort of it's sort of an Oliver Twist and Fagin sort of relationship. And then it turns out the the police are on to the monkey, and the monkey somehow reveals that it's Mr. Chow. Like maybe the monkey is wearing a T-shirt with Mr. Chow's face, or it has some tattoo that says "I love my master, Mr. Chow." Like some stupid thing on him. That points Mr. Chow. So Mr. Chow has to take the monkey, steal it, and flee to... Uh, it's sort of an intercool, I suppose. But he flees to Thailand, where he sells the monkey for, for money. And it also references... Um, uh, we get a line in Hanover 3, how Mr. Chow spent the first $20 million in Thailand. Well, how did he do that? And so part of it is going to Mr. Chow's debauchery. And that it's a bit like Brewster's Millions. He has all this money, but he wants to get rid of it within a certain time period. 
And there'd be a cameo from Alan, because Alan has some relationship with Mr. Chow. And so we'll get some fun scenes with that. And it ends with um, Mr. Chow meeting up with the... You get a cameo from all three uh, members of the wolf pack showing up in Thailand. And Mr. Chow says, oh, we're going to have a crazy night. And then it cuts to black. Hmm. It'd be called Mr. Chow plus Monkey. <laughs> I like the plus monkey. That's nice. Yeah. All right, let's move on to what you're watching. Um, do you mind if I start, Thrasher? No, go right ahead. Okay, so I was watching a documentary. It's the second time I've watched it. I liked it so much. It's called Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant Dead. The history of National Lampoon, huh. and it it goes specifically on the history of when it uh, it originated as a humor magazine at Harvard, but then uh, kind of spun off and became a um, a magazine, hence National Lampoon instead of Harvard Lampoon. And especially, you know, it, it goes into during the seventies, and then how they had a lot of movie spinoffs, and how a lot of people that worked on National Lampoon, um, including someone we interviewed for our show, uh, Germometer Critiquing the Critic, uh, Al Jean, you know, was, was in, got his sort of professional start doing work on National Lampoon. And um, it, it's just a good history of the magazine. It's The magazine is still around, which surprised me. I didn't realize that. And uh, they also have uh, Chevy Chase talks a lot in there, which you don't see him on documentaries so much. But he talks about a dear friend of his that died in Hawaii, that he was a big... Um, writer on National Lampoon and ended up producing some of the movies, including Caddyshack, which is a National Lampoon movie in all but name, considering who's involved with it. So so how was it? Did it leave you with a good impression? I liked it, yeah. It was educational for me. I didn't know uh, terribly a lot about the magazine. I, I think what uh, I found the most interesting is... Initially, the people responsible for doing the the artwork had more sort of like 70s, hippie, sort of um, loosey-goosey kind of artwork. And they were quickly replaced by a different team of people that made it look more like uh, realistic recreations of advertisements and uh, more photography than illustration. Um, also mentioned John Hughes's uh, big contributions to the magazine. And it, um, I learned a lot. I liked it. I think it was at a good pace. Um, I would have liked to have seen more like how the brand got tarnished so much where they just sort of stuck it on whatever direct video movie they could. Because for a while, National Lampoon with the vacation movies and, uh, it was sort of a mark of quality, I think, or a branding people recognized. Yeah, it is. It, it is strange. And it's also weird that like, other established humor magazines didn't have that. Like Mad Magazine only Mad, had Mad Magazine one had film. one. It yes. was direct to it was direct to DVD, and it was called like Mad Magazine's Up the Academy. And the connection it, to yeah. Mad Magazine was tenuous. I remember reading a review of it that posited that this was a completely unrelated movie that somehow got tied into Mad Magazine to shore up funding, which is why the only reference to Mad Magazine is that there's a statue of the college's founder, which is a statue of Alfred E. Newman. And they took that out of some of the video releases, too. Um, but yeah, I, I'm looking... 
about films, not in some are direct to video and some are not, but there's probably uh, over, it looks like uh, by my count, over three dozen films with the National Lampoon label on it. Some of which I think were not so bad, you know, like National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1, that has some moments, but most of it's um, shit you've never heard of. Like, uh, I didn't know Van Wilder was National Lampoon. That was sort of a better known one. But then you have stuff like uh, Transylvania, Endless Bummer, The Legend of Awesomest Maximus. Transylvania was a National Lampoon film? Yes. I remember the trailer for that. I don't remember any connection to National Lampoon being brought up. Wow. Never it's saw the movie, a, though. The trailer didn't leave me with that good It's of an technically a sequel to National Lampoon's Dorm Days 2. Huh. And uh, was shot in Romania. Okay, how about that? Dad's Week Off, The Don's Analyst. That's one I sort of remember. Men in White, I, I vaguely remember. That was, that was actually, if I remember correctly, that was like the first original TV movie on the Family Channel after it rebranded itself in the 90s. As, as Fox Family Channel, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so it, I really liked it. I think you'd get a kick out of it. And um, it's interesting to see Chevy Chase be sort of sincere and not an asshole, as he often comes across as. Because it should be mentioned, they also get much into the National Lampoon Saturday Night Live connection, because there was a National Lampoon stage show called Lemmings in '73 that had much of the uh, what would later be the cast of Saturday Night Live on it, including Chevy Chase, um, John Belushi, but also such famous people as uh, Christopher Guest. Oh, that's right. And Harold Ramis. Uh, so. As it says in the poster for Lemmings, a satirical joke rock mock concert musical comedy semi-review theatrical presentation. <laughs> and you can you can track uh, some of their old albums on YouTube. But I, I would highly, and also I neglected to mention National Lampoon did comedy albums as well. Because that used to be a big thing. I think you still get that a little bit, but not as much, right? You get a stand-up on CD, but as far as a, a deliberately... Uh, comedic album that's nothing but sketches you know you don't really see that too much well i love that uh national lampoon uh record that has that fluke a fluke of the universe song which i really really loved and um last thing about the huge uh, documentary of course it talks uh extensively about the its most famous cover by this magazine and we'll shoot this dog <laughs> it, it it looks like it was um over 20 years ago um, there was a box set of CDs of uh, the best of the National Lampoon's Radio Hour. So a lot, lot, lot of cool stuff out there, but it's called, uh, let me get the name of it again, Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, and Dead, National Lam History of National Lampoon. Uh, I caught it on Showtime. It also might be on Netflix. Uh, highly recommend it. Very good. I think listeners of the show would enjoy it. So I saw uh, 2017's Life. Oh, uh, that's a science fiction picture? Yes, yeah, a sci science fiction horror picture. Uh, the th This was the movie that, for whatever reason, in the week running up to its release, there were all these rumors that, is, that this was a stealth prequel for the upcoming Venom movie. That is, of course, not true. 
Is it with Ryan Reynolds? Is it that one? Yes, Ryan, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds plays one of the most frustrating characters uh, in this film. <laughs> so would you, it looked a bit like Alien, I thought, from the preview. It it tries to be it tries to build that same kind of dread where it fall like the first the first half of the movie is overall really good. It's it's the second half where it falls apart and sadly that's when the monster starts to really get active. So it's all about the crew of the International Space Station and a Mars probe is returning with some soil samples from Mars and one of the soil samples has a single cell on it. So they decide to cultivate the cell and see what the organism is. And it grows into this, uh, this sort of fungus blob, which eventually grows into this little starfish creature. And they try, they try to establish some general rules governing the biology of this creature. Those rules don't matter. And that's, that's where the movie kind of falls apart in the second half. One of the great things about Alien is that the, the xenomorph is a completely alien organism, but it ha- it's still governed by rules. It still has a biology that we discover as the protagonists discover it and all of its horror is built out of this alien biology once things get going in life all it is is a all it is is a, is a starfish that kills people uh the the its alien origins are completely incidental this movie would could be about a rabid cat on the international space station and it would function exactly the same way hmm and you know it's it's a shame. Once I mean, you do, they do a good job of making you care about the characters. So it does matter when they start dying, but they're just being they're just being bumped off. And uh, so yeah, yeah. By the time by the time you know it sets up the horrific twist ending, the the goodwill from the first half of the film is lost, and it do, it doesn't quite the part the part of the twist ending that's supposed to horrify you doesn't. There's a different part of the twist ending that does, and I'm not sure that's that's what the creators of the film are going for. I mean, so should I should our listeners watch this movie or no? Skip it. Um, only I would say only if you're really into sci-fi horror or or Ryan Reynolds. Um, other other than that, you you wouldn't be missing too much. Like as as I said, the first half's really good. The second half, once the killing starts, is just it's just rote horror movie. They don't really, they don't take advantage of the fact that the whole thing's set on the international space station involving an alien organism. Is it better or worse than event horizon? I'm going to say worse only because event horizon had a real sense of cheesy haunted house fun to it. That really made the film redeemable. Oh, and with, and with event horizon, no one acts like an idiot. Oh, there's also really one bad special effect. So the whole movie's on the International Space Station. It's all in zero-G. And they do a really good job making it look like zero-G, except for one scene that's so glaringly bad. Uh, and it's a scene where uh, one of the biologists, the uh, the organism's in this containment box, and it's one of those things where you can put your hands in these rubber gloves to interact with what's in the box. So the organism has broken the guy's hand. And when he finally is able to pull his hand out, because they're in zero G, when he pulls his hand out, his hand should be still floppy because all the bones are broken, but it should also be in the air. When he pulls his hand out, it flops downward. Oh, weird. And all they had to do was change the angle 90 degrees, and they could have had the film flop 
in a much more realistic way, but for whatever reason, they don't, and it looks so bad. Hmm. Well, so, so I guess I'll give Life a sequel no. Okay. Very cool. So, with, um, for Sequel Guest 2, I'm, uh, Matt. Check me out on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. And I'm Thrasher. You can check me out on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Check out the show, uh, follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. Like our Facebook page, just search SequelCast2. And leave a review on iTunes. Look up SequelCast2 and leave a tasty review. For uh, Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. I believe I can fly. Oh, I believe I can touch the sky. And think about it. I can fly. I can fly. I believe I can fly. I can fly. I Sequel Cast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet. Find another great film and TV podcast at battleshipretention.com. The theme song to Sequel Cast 2 was written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at markwiththesea.com. You can also listen to Sequel Cast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequel Cast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet. 